Good afternoon. I'm Dr. John Ewing with Spirit Lake Wellness. Today's podcast is on Suboxone dosing. With me, I have Dr. Thomas Hayes, a psychologist, uh, and we have uh, Ted Hall, board-certified psychiatric pharmacist. So we have a number of questions to cover. Uh, The first question is, uh, who is a good candidate for the use of Suboxone versus methadone? Well, uh, from a psychological standpoint, I don't find a whole lot of advantage to uh, using methadone at all. If somebody is um, addicted, uh, my preference is almost always with Suboxone. Um, If it's used correctly, it's used in a proper treatment paradigm, uh, through the uh, stabilization and the the uh, tapering process, I find we can get them uh, functioning um, very quickly and very early on in treatment. So my preference is almost always for uh, for suboxone. I, I believe there's probably times where methadone maintenance works best, uh, but those typically are not my patients. Yeah. Uh, so traditionally, the methadone maintenance evolved out of a need to manage uh, hardcore IV heroin users in an inner city environment, and this worked quite well. One of the limitations is that the dose is brought up slowly, and the slowness of that titration is intended to help prevent overdose. However, some people continue to use, and uh, so it's, it's fairly tricky to uh, titrate a patient slowly up to an effective dose of methadone. Suboxone has the advantage of entering the system much more rapidly and more rapidly stabilizing the patient because it also has a blocking effect um, that prevents, uh, uh, or that actually can protect the patient from overdose. So the ideal Suboxone patient is uh, uh, a prescription opiate user Uh, People that use IV heroin, very often they have so influenced their reward system and adrenergic system that they're going to have a little bit of a feeling of of dose reduction when they step down to just using Suboxone. And uh, so uh, if patients will respond to Suboxone, it's certainly worth a try, but some of your hardcore IV heroin users uh, that don't get on board are probably better served at a structured daily dosing program with uh, methadone. So then the next question is, uh, how do we avoid precipitated withdrawal? And what is precipitated withdrawal? So with precipitated withdrawal, anytime we add an agent that is going to replace the opioids that were taken illicitly or without a prescription um, at, a, at a lower dose, we're going to invoke those physical symptoms. And that can happen with Suboxone, and I believe I haven't had the training myself, but that's why the rapid induction has to happen while somebody's in withdrawal already to target that dose that's going to be effective for them based on their previous use of um, illicit opiates, whether it's prescription, drugs, or uh, heroin. So in order to avoid precipitated withdrawal, what I tend to do in my practice is get a history of their total opioid use in the previous week, and then identify the longest acting opioid that they ingested, whether it's methadone or buprenorphine, and then um, 
take a look at pharmacokinetically how long based on half-lives that that's going to start coming out of the body and, and then and it's kind of an art like so you you figure out with the suboxone how, where you're going to meet that target dose that you're going to prevent physical withdrawal and allow functionality um, but we're not going to avoid it altogether they're going to go through a minimal you know minimal physical withdrawal syndrome well yeah a lot depends on the drug that uh, is being used we like to have uh, at least a couple of weeks of drug logs in order to do very much what you're, what you're describing. So if somebody's been using heroin, which has a very uh, fast half-life, uh, they're going to go into withdrawal sooner, um, but ultimately will be able to uh, uh, start using uh, Suboxone effectively because they're in withdrawal. Uh, whereas somebody with methadone, it may take you know, five, seven, ten days before they're uh, fully in withdrawal uh, where uh, suboxone can be dosed without putting them into withdrawal. That's essentially what precipitated withdrawal is, is um, that you are uh, in introducing uh, a drug uh, such as suboxone which uh, binds stronger to the opiate receptor than what are called full agonist or the uh, full-on uh, opiate drugs of abuse. So if you have a lot of, uh, of those uh, receptors covered with an active drug and it gets replaced with Suboxone, then the person is going to go through withdrawal. Uh, we like to see them in withdrawal before we start Suboxone and then they will rapidly uh, feel better. I mean, you know, 20, 30 minutes, 60 minutes later, they'll feel considerably better. Uh, which psychologically really helps that reinforcement process of I think I'll stick with what uh, what I'm being prescribed as opposed to using drugs off the street. This is true and I think it's very important that we provide a good initial experience for the patient so that they can buy into treatment. If we give them a medication and they take it and feel worse then they will be much more reluctant to fully engage in, in treatment. So that first, uh, the first time we introduce them to the medication, if they are in withdrawal and it provides good relief from their withdrawal symptoms, that will provide them with a positive experience that we can then use later. It's almost as if we, we get goodwill from the patient and our credibility increases if we give them something that makes them feel better. So whatever we can do to uh, get them into about as much withdrawal as they can tolerate, uh, then we provide them with uh, Suboxone and we will get a very good result and they will feel better. So uh, there are occasional patients that metabolize heroin slowly and it's best to wait four or five days or three days before we start Suboxone. Um, most patients can start Suboxone uh, 24 hours after uh, their last dose of heroin. Some of the longer acting agents such as methadone in particular, uh, yes you do want to wait uh, many days and hopefully they're not at a large dose of methadone. Hopefully they're down around 30 milligrams a day or, or less. So moving on now to uh, the initial dosing, 
there are some patients that are not very dependent on opiates. Uh, perhaps they use 15 or 20 milligrams of hydro hydrocodone a day, but they've had difficulty regulating that and difficulty stopping. And so for these patients, we might start with a very low dose of Suboxone to avoid having them uh, become sleepy or have uh, low blood pressure. So then there's also the concept of the loading dose phase where we try to get as much of the medication into the patient system as they need to fully relieve them of their withdrawal symptoms. Now often what happens is that we might need 16 or 24 milligrams of Suboxone a day to get somebody started on Suboxone but then very rapidly the medication builds up in their system and they do not need as much but they become anxious about dose reductions even though there's really not that much difference. So uh, once stabilization has occurred and the patient has uh, stopped using opiates, what then is the ideal dosing range to uh, keep people in treatment, decrease their risk of relapse, and to decrease the risk of diversion, the risk that they will share their medication with others? Um, when it comes to counseling and psychotherapy, uh, just understanding that Suboxone, uh, while it's a better drug than uh, most of the full-blown uh, full opiates are, it still has an effect on the sensorium, it still has an effect on the brain. So the higher the dose, I like to think uh, the higher the dose, the less brain is available uh, to us uh, to, to work with the person on. In, uh, in the change process, in the therapy process. So typically if we see somebody at two milligrams, four milligrams, six milligrams, there's a lot for us to work with as opposed to the full agonist. If they're on eight milligrams, <coughs> there's still plenty to work with, uh, but above eight, we find that most of our uh, therapy involves symptom management, it involves a great deal of repetition, uh, there aren't a lot of skills that are that are being uh, built, but uh, oftentimes, it's as, as Dr. Ewing said, we are working with the anxiety of dose reduction, and uh, sometimes it's difficult for therapists to comprehend that that's what they're doing, is um, uh, just taking the client, take the patient where they're at, say they're at 16 milligrams, and we want to bring it down to 12 milligrams. They're going to have a lot of anxiety about that, which is a normal emotional response. Because their life was entirely out of control. Now, say they're on 16 milligrams or 24 milligrams, and it very much feels like life is in control. And now we're trying to push them. It feels like we're trying to push them over a cliff and say, this is working, but, but uh, we're, we're going to mess with that. And they feel like, since most people have experienced with, with what withdrawal feels like, they feel as though they're going to go into withdrawal, and that fear uh, motivates a lack of change in the dose. So we have to work with them at balancing out that thinking that here is the doctor who stabilized you. He's not going to now want to unstabilize you. There may be a few difficulties uh, that you encounter, but it's nowhere near full-blown withdrawal. And let's just practice that and practice that. When we get below eight milligrams, we can do a lot in terms of developing 
coping skills, uh, social skills, um, uh, lifestyle management skills. Um, so there's a lot more brain available, but we don't want to push too, too fast to get down there. At the same time, we don't want somebody at this very, very high dose for too long a period of time that, uh, because that could, uh, dosing at a very high dose, uh, could mean there would be difficulty in tapering down to small, smaller doses. And absolutely, just um, as Dr. Hayes just spoke about, the, the target is to make, mitigate any physical symptoms and not overshoot. So meeting the patient where they're at and then titrating slow and staying where they're not having physical symptoms and they're gaining stability in their functionality and not going any further than that. So then we don't have more work later to do in tapering down and addressing anticipatory anxiety and, and having to address that. I agree. Uh, what we are trying to teach people is how to cope with life more effectively. And one of the ways of thinking about opiates and Suboxone is that they imitate endorphins and endorphins uh, modulate the stress response. It's the equivalent of covering up all of the alarm systems that would ordinarily keep the person safe. So at a higher dose, uh, those alarms are not ringing. They are not aware of uh, many ways that they could improve their life um, and of the dangers of some of the habits that they've, that they've uh, uh, developed. So we do want to have some degree of uh, urgency and stress uh, to motivate the patient to start to utilize the coping skills that we teach them. I think there is a period where if uh, we've turned off the alarm and then we provide people with information uh, on how to cope and then they need to practice those skills, otherwise they develop a kind of a wax coating where information that we provide in the future sort of beads up and rolls off like water on a duck's back. Um, so if you look at uh, some receptor saturation studies, uh, it's been demonstrated that if you take somebody, for example, who is on 8 or 16 or 24 milligrams of Suboxone a day, and this is using the tablets with sublingual absorption, uh, and then you give them a radioactive buprenorphine, there will be virtually no receptors left in the brain for the radioactive buprenorphine to occupy. So suboxone dosing above 8 milligrams a day really doesn't make that much difference in terms of central receptor saturation. Uh, so my preference is to uh, get people down to eight milligrams a day. I think the national standards are to get dosing between eight and 16 milligrams a day. My preference is to go between four and eight milligrams a day. Uh, once we go below four milligrams a day, we do see an increase in the rate of relapse. Uh, one of the things that patients have difficulty with is in their absorption technique. Very often, people will follow our instructions initially but then they'll get in the habit of washing the taste out of their mouth with water or some kind of beverage. And very soon they're washing their mouth out sooner and sooner and without realizing it, some of them are basically washing the medicine down and then they come in in withdrawal and distress 
uh, wanting a higher dose when really the only thing that's changed is that their absorption technique has deteriorated. Um, most recently, people have been using a cheek method of absorption, which is much more effective than absorbing the medication under the tongue. Uh, uh, so sometimes it's helpful to observe the absorption technique and we can resolve a lot of problems uh, uh, when we get people to use good technique. So uh, once we have stabilized the patient, are, is therapy complete? Once, uh, once we have biochemically stabilized a, a patient, treatment can begin. That's an excellent observation. Um, many patients come to us thinking that the solution is chemical and they don't recognize that a whole lot of their internal experiences result from the way that they use information and the habits that they've gotten into uh, regarding their thinking about the world around them and the type of relationships that they've cultivated. And so I think it's critical to recognize that once we've stabilized the patient, that's when treatment really begins. Uh, and then that's a good observation and speaks to how crucial it is that it has to be paired with cognitive behavior therapy and mental health counseling. So with the office-based treatment and today's medical model, um, we look at this chronic reoccurring brain disorder addiction similar to diabetes or hypertension where you come to the office, you get your Suboxone and then you go home and it's prescribed like a diabetes or blood pressure medication. So it is crucial that we pair services with behavioral health and that we're working very close and in tandem because it's medically assisted treatment, it's not medication treatment. So the medication is there to stabilize the biological and physiological part of addiction, but then begins the psychosocial skill building and things that are going to be more crucial for sobriety and recovery. So there are a couple of other uh, issues about absorption and about dosing that it's worthwhile to keep in mind. Uh, one is that there are central effects and peripheral effects of buprenorphine or Suboxone on a, on a person's experience. Uh, we all have a circadian rhythm where we wake up in the morning, most of us stay awake uh, for about 16 hours or so, and then we go to sleep. And uh, the endorphins seem to rise in the morning and then to decrease at night. And many chronic pain patients will, will, feel, the, will feel pain most acutely in the hours of midnight to three and four in the morning. And they call that the, the witching hour. Uh, so this circadian rhythm, we can use this to our advantage. There is the peripheral effect of buprenorphine, which uh, some people are sensitive to, not all patients are sensitive to this, but if we dose in the morning and then a smaller dose midday, then it will leave their peripheral circulation and they'll have an easier time going to sleep. If we skip the midday dose, some patients will have uh, an afternoon letdown effect and they will sometimes perceive this as withdrawal and will go out and get something to use. Um, uh, the other thing that's interesting is that um, 
buprenorphine or suboxone can be used for uh, treating pain. Uh, however, uh, it requires saturation of both the peripheral and the central receptors to have a pain relieving effect. And so if somebody has pain, we would, we would uh, spread the same dose out through multiple doses per day, uh, perhaps as many as uh, every eight hours, uh, bearing in mind that some people will be kept awake at night if they take too much uh, in the afternoon and evening. So then, how do we know, once we've stabilized the patient, we've gotten them to an appropriate dose where uh, they do have enough mental function and uh, enough of an alarm system to participate in therapy, and they seem to be benefiting from therapy, how do we know uh, when or if we should taper that patient off of Suboxone? A lot of it has to do with other circumstances. Um, the number of patients I've had over the years that have had, uh, say, uh, severe pain, oftentimes is dental pain, uh, precludes them going uh, uh, tapering much until they get the source of that pain uh, taken care of. Uh, looking at an entire bio-psycho-social-spiritual model, what kind of stressors are going on in their life? Is there an increase? in their stressors. Um, we like to time a dose reduction with the probability of success. So if they're using their available psychological and social resources to take care of other problems, they're not as apt to be able to uh, tolerate any sort of dose reduction and some of the, some of the small hurdles that go along with that. Uh, conversely, there's uh, folks who are chronically and, and always seem to have uh, issues going on in their life. And then uh, uh, the dilemma is, do we just keep them on a uh, maintenance dose of uh, Suboxone or buprenorphine, or do we uh, push them anyway? Uh, the hope being that a lower dose of uh, buprenorphine gives them a little bit more coping skills, gives them a little more clear-headedness with which to tackle the other problems. And, and this is really solved on a case-by-case-by-case -case -case basis. Uh, I think, by and large, uh, most people are reluctant to start tapering. And then those same patients, as they get on lower doses, uh, we're telling them just to, to, to slow down their taper. That, you know, it, it, it took me a year to get from, you know, 24 milligrams down to 4 milligrams, but I want to take six weeks and get off of it completely. Well, that's like starting at the top of the Empire State Building, getting halfway down, and then jumping. So we find on the one hand, we're encouraging people to uh, taper and to work with their anxiety. On the other hand, once they get on lower doses, don't taper too fast. Respect how much even these smaller doses, uh, how much of an effect it can have on your brainstem, how much of an effect it can have on your body. So uh, to answer your question, it, it is very much on a case-by-case -case basis. But it's biological, it's psychological, it's social, and many times it's spiritual as well. It has to do with the environment and their, and their, their personal worldview and how, they're, how they feel they're fitting, their lifestyle is fitting in the lifestyle around them. This is true. Um, opinions about uh, tapering versus maintenance uh, vary from one extreme to the other. On the one extreme, 
are uh, people that believe that taper equals relapse. And they cite statistics such as in the inner city, in methadone clinics, about 85% of the patients who taper off of, I'm sorry, off of methadone will relapse within six months. And this is certainly a discouraging uh, statistic. Um, and at the other extreme are people that uh, use Suboxone, but they're only allowed to see a limited number of patients and they know that some patients will be able to successfully taper off of Suboxone and succeed. Um, and so they see it then as their, their goal to taper everyone off after some period of time so that they can find the patients who can achieve and maintain abstinence. And I think most people fall somewhere in the middle uh, between these extremes. In an ideal world, the only people that we would taper would be the patients that want to be tapered off of the medication. Um, in, a, uh, in the real world, there is the inconvenience of coming to the clinic, the need to supervise a patient's use of medication, uh, and the expense of the medication itself. And so um, uh, many people will uh, be interested in tapering and sometimes the providers are, are interested in seeing if the patient can in fact uh, succeed without the, the medication. So when we start to taper, uh, once the decision has been made, um, how do we do it? What's the, uh, uh, what's the process by which we would taper an individual off of Suboxone? There are uh, pretty logical uh, decreases depending on where, uh, uh, where a patient is at in their dose. So looking at how much uh, of the opiate receptor is uh, uh, occupied at different doses helps us determine what the next logical reduction is. So if somebody's on over 8 milligrams, it's not unusual to be able to taper at 4 milligram uh, increments because there isn't a lot of difference biologically, there isn't a lot of difference in um, uh, the effect within their brain. I mean you go from 96% saturation to 92% saturation for instance, you're not going to get any uh, true withdrawal. You may get a lot of anxiety, as we talked about before, but you're not getting a withdrawal. But as they get lower than those increments, it goes from uh, four milligram drops to two milligram drops to one milligram drop to a half a milligram drop or a quarter of a milligram drop uh, based on how much of the receptors you're actually uncovering. That equals the amount of distress the person is going to have from withdrawal. And uh, the, the, the thought that going, say, from 24 milligrams down to uh, 8 milligrams uh, is just a tiny step, but going from 8 milligrams to 4 milligrams or 4 milligrams to 2 milligrams is a huge step. That, that just leaves people a little bit uh, confused and flummoxed. But if you look at the pharmacokinetic uh, effects, <laughs> there is a lot more uncovering the lower the dose uh, goes. There's a lot more potential for withdrawal symptoms and withdrawal 
uh, symptoms will increase craving. Craving increases relapse prevention, or pardon me, uh, relapse potential. And so we have to be very, very scientific about how we go about uh, dose reduction. Too fast, and we have, uh, we've redeveloped uh, probability of addiction. I agree. I, if we look at uh, some of our patients' efforts to taper off of Suboxone, uh, they might be at uh, 16 or 24 milligrams a day, so the next day they take uh, 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 12, and then the day after that they take 8, and then the day after that they take 4, uh, and they feel just fine. Well, the reason that they feel fine is because the medication stays in their central nervous system long enough to where the withdrawal symptoms aren't going to start really for about four to five days or even seven days after they stop the medication. Uh, so this can lull them into a false sense of security and it creates this, uh, this image of success that, that they're some kind of a rehab superman that they are able to uh, now uh, stop this medication without fear of withdrawal. And, in, and what we find is that um, the withdrawal then catches up with them and that they then don't feel relief when they go up on the dose a little bit. No, they have to load their system back up. So they end up convincing themselves that they need a higher dose than what they were previously on. Uh, for example, if someone was stable at uh, uh, six or eight milligrams a day and then they drop it down to one or two milligrams a day and start having withdrawal symptoms, uh, they might need more than six or eight milligrams for one or two days to uh, get the levels in their system back up to, to where they feel relief from withdrawal symptoms. And oftentimes they might then convince themselves, no, you don't understand, doctor, I need 12 milligrams a day when in fact they, they really don't. So I think that uh, uh, the tendency of the medication to stay in a patient system a long time can complicate our efforts to uh, taper a person off of Suboxone if they proceed too fast. So my preference is to make dose reductions about every two weeks. My estimate is that uh, we're going to start to see uh, the the effects of a dose reduction in terms of the receptor saturation, we're going to see those effects after about four to five days uh, from a slight dose reduction. And then we allow them another four or five days to uh, adapt to that slightly lower dose, and then another four or five days to rest up and get their confidence back about uh, further dose reductions. And if the dose reduction is small enough, uh, they might not have any noticeable discomfort from the dose reduction. And there's some technique uh, to that, uh, particularly in getting uh, uh, patients to reduce the first time, knowing that there's a long half-life and knowing that there's a long clearance. Uh, I will often um, encourage a patient that has, that is on a high level of, of Suboxone to cut their dose, say they're on 16 milligrams, let's just cut your dose to 12 milligrams one day, just one day, and then, and then the next day you'll go back to 16 and you can report to me the results of that experiment. What kind of feelings did you have? And that allows us to separate out that uh, anticipatory anxiety, oh my goodness, I'm going to go into withdrawal, 
from the tension that goes, or the, the, the anxiety that they feel from true withdrawal. At the same time, um, recognizing that anxiety is a normal uh, mood state, so we get scared for good reasons, and to be able to separate that out, just feeling scared is not a uh, withdrawal effect or withdrawal symptom. But oftentimes, because in the lifestyle, putting chemicals into my system gives me that sense of good feeling or gives me that sense of security, just only dosing once or twice a day uh, makes it very difficult for them. Their behavior is usually several times a day of taking something chemical in order to feel stable. So um, again, with uh, decreases are, are often difficult. And confronting that personal mentality that says more is better isn't an easy thing to uh, overcome. The, the behaviors are often several times a day of trying to create stability. And so recognizing that we are, even though it's cognitive emotive dissonance, that we are encouraging a uh, new behavior, a new set of actions, a structured way of approaching their life, um, does create a certain amount of distress. So one way of looking at uh, the effects of withdrawal on the patient is to separate out the withdrawal into the two major systems that are affected. Uh, one system is the reward system, which is basically the level of dopamine. And when people's dopamine level is low, they feel sluggish and fatigued. Um, so uh, as a result of uh, suboxone dose reduction, people may experience a little bit of a decrease in energy. And sometimes people feel that this is intolerable. So one trick that I've developed to help people with that is that they can, uh, for a few days, use about 50 milligrams of vitamin B6 in the morning, and that will slightly enhance their dopamine production. And I discourage them from taking it on a regular basis. Um, and that will help with that sort of drop in energy. And if the drop in energy uh, happens as a result of a dose reduction, well then um, uh, we wait for a week or so, and their energy level will come back up. Uh, uh, so the other effect that we worry about is on adrenaline, the adrenergic tone. And if we uh, reduce the suboxone, uh, some of the effects of adrenaline will then be uh, amplified somewhat. And so they might have sweating, anxiety, and irritability. Uh, so sometimes we can use a muscle relaxer such as tizanidine or clonidine to temporarily reduce these, sim these symptoms. Ideally, what we want to do is to make the dose reduction so small that we don't have to use either of these maneuvers, that we can simply stay within that operating range uh, that the person is used to and, uh, and they will not notice the effects of the dose reduction. Uh, one of the, the principles that I use is that uh, the experience of withdrawal sets a person up for the next relapse. And so ideally what we can do is taper them gradually off of Suboxone without having them experience any withdrawal. And you, you mentioned something there that I think is really important to underscore, and that's that uh, addiction, opiate addiction, doesn't just affect the opiate system in the brain, it also affects dopamine. 
It also affects uh, serotonin. That there are depletions of these uh, chemicals that are necessary for us to regulate our mood, uh, for, for motivation, to control agitation. And so even though we may put a lot of emphasis on the opiate system, you're looking at rebalancing several important systems within the brain uh, when you're just, uh, when you're using the different doses of buprenorphine. Uh, so an another thing to discuss is that when we get down to around one milligram of Suboxone and less a day, we often see the reemergence of comorbid conditions. For example, if someone has panic disorder, anxiety, depression, or even attention deficit disorder, oftentimes these were covered up by the Suboxone and then they seem to reemerge. Uh, so many times we have to address this uh, with an antidepressant and sometimes with a, a temporary uh, uh, prescription for a stimulant for attention deficit disorder and this will then facilitate the patient's final taper off of Suboxone. Uh, once the uh, taper is complete, uh, if a person has, for example, a mild depression or a mild attention deficit disorder, uh, then uh, those symptoms resolve and the person no, no, no longer needs the uh, stimulant medication or the antidepressant. Uh, so I think particularly with attention deficit disorder, these drugs of abuse and even buprenorphine chemically produce an ADD. <coughs> so it becomes very difficult clinically to discern what's truly an attention deficit disorder and what's simply a side effect of the medication. And especially um, individuals are going through an adjustment period, so these affective moods may arise. So in, rather than label anxiety or depression, I, I like to use adjustment disorder with anxiety, depression, or both. And also I'm very cautious when I'm adding on antidepressants and anti-anxiety, knowing that the opioid use and, concur and now buprenorphine maintenance may be affecting those neurotransmitters and those systems that um, how this individual reacts may be very different than somebody who hasn't been exposed to opioids in response to the antidepressant. So I tend to not dose titrate so quickly because it, those systems were already limited and now those antidepressants may not have the same effect as they would prior to opioid use. Well yes, antidepressant, the mechanisms of action of antidepressants are quite complicated. So, you know, you're always weighing out uh, how much benefit versus how much risk uh, that uh, you're putting a patient through. This is true. And fortunately, in most of the patients that have the mild depression or the mild attention deficit disorder, um, they respond to very low doses of antidepressants or stimulants. And, um, uh, and it's rare. And the patients with panic disorder, for example, they typically respond to almost homeopathic doses of an SSRI. So then, uh, w one of the things that I find is that many people are unaware of just how strong of a medication buprenorphine really is and how much effect there is in spite of very low doses. 
using a two milligram uh, suboxone dose, I've found that if I get people down to an eighth of a film or an eighth of a tablet daily and then stop them, about two out of three patients will have some mild withdrawal symptoms. If I get people down to a sixteenth of a two milligram dose and they're stable at that, then we stop, about one out of three will have uh, withdrawal symptoms. And if we get down below that, uh, then uh, uh, people are typically quite comfortable when they finally do stop Suboxone. And my preference is to get them down to about as low a dose as they can reliably measure and then have them start taking it every other day and then every third day. And then finally, they'll find themselves forgetting about the medication. And once they are reliably forgetting to take the medication, they have demonstrated to themselves that they don't need it anymore and that's when I, I think we have a successful taper. Um, and now there are some interesting things that will happen as we taper. At first the uh, person is relying on the Suboxone for a uh, sense of energy and well-being and once we get down below about one milligram a day their own natural systems will come online and oftentimes this will give them a greater sense of well-being than they got from the Suboxone. So then we have to slow them down and hold them back and keep them from tapering too fast. Uh, the other thing that will typically happen is when we finally uh, taper them off of Suboxone uh, and their own natural systems come back online, they will feel better, sometimes almost euphoric, and uh, so then we see two types of relapse phenomena. We see this, re this uh, euphoric relaxation and almost celebratory relapse. Well, yay, I'm done, I'm not addicted anymore. Uh, and uh, then, <laughs> then we also see the stress-induced relapse. Um, and finally, I think the company that people keep has a lot to do with uh, whether or not they relapse. So it certainly does. I know. Uh, sometimes patients will scratch their head and they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm off of Suboxone now. Why do you suggest I continue counseling for another six months? And it's just, you know, just good mental floss. We want to be ready in case you do get craving, in case uh, you do have a stressful event that you're not sure to handle. Um, I think as a therapist, as a psychologist, uh, my my tendency is to discharge patients too soon and I have to continually remind myself that yes their life was a total shambles uh, a year ago when I first met them and now they're doing amazingly well but but we don't want to we don't want to stop too soon uh, just because they're not uh, presenting the same lifestyle doesn't mean they won't hit some hurdles here or there and we're much better fine-tuning things than we are uh, trying to process through a full-blown relapse um, where oftentimes treatment has to start uh, either start over or uh, we have to deal with uh, both biological and psychological setbacks and as Dr. Ewing said that social environment is so critical so key and uh, even finding that idea that I'm better off being lonely than being around people that are using 
that's that's quite a switch to take uh, to take place in in somebody's mind. Yet it's a switch towards health. So uh, the social environment is key. So I'd like to review briefly uh, what a reasonable tapering strategy is, and then uh, uh, discuss principles of relapse prevention and how do we get people to engage in that. So as a general rule, uh, we go uh, down to 12 milligrams, 8 milligrams, 6 milligrams, 4 milligrams, 3 milligrams, 2.5 milligrams, and then using the 2 milligram formulations, we can go down by an eighth of a tablet or uh, film uh, every two weeks until we get to uh, half of a film. Some people can go down by a quarter. And then we go down by one-eighth to one-sixteenth of a film or tablet daily uh, until we get down to about an eighth of a tablet. And then you go down to a sixteenth and then a sixteenth every other day and then every third day and finally stop. And so are there any other aspects of relapse prevention then that we uh, fail to discover or discuss or need to talk about? Well, in terms of biology, I mean, um, uh, certainly looking at that, uh, the taper and making sure that that's a, a successful uh, taper for them is important. But we often find that uh, people do better at, at preventing relapse when they're moving away from medication and moving towards more health-oriented activities. So we'll see exercise increase, we'll see nutrition increase, we'll see them take uh, time out of their day to make sure they're going through muscle relaxation, that they're clearing their mind, they're clearing their head, and they're just kind of finding that there's happiness and enjoyment uh, that, that, that uh, fulfills them on a daily basis. Relapse prevention is very much taking that biologic, psychological, social, and spiritual, uh, each of those dimensions, and saying, okay, what are the things within this that could cause me to be at risk for relapse? We're all or nothing thinkers as human beings. So we always look for the thing that's going to cause it, instead of looking for the hundred things that would, would contribute 1% to it. So there's thought styles, thought patterns, or specific thoughts that could lead uh, to a higher risk for relapse. We want to identify those. There are emotions, you know, anger, fear, uh, sadness, guilt, that uh, hurt, that, that could uh, ultimately lead uh, closer to relapse or increase relapse risk. There's people, there may be family members, friends, neighbors, uh, or, or places, you know, certain um, uh, neighborhoods or you know it's like the alcoholic walking into a bar to buy a lottery ticket no 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 go somewhere else um, and so if we break those chunks down and look for just those little bit small increases in, in incremental risk uh, you far uh, you end up with a far more robust relapse plan because if I was going the wrong direction I would much rather figure it out when I'm two steps out of the way than, than, than when I'm 50 miles uh, out of the way. And that's, that's very much that cognitive roadmap that we want to draw in relapse prevention. And Dr. Hayes pointed to a very important concept of um, moving away from my completely thinking about and identifying with addiction with our social networks and looking more towards healthier life choices and, and well life choices. And that can even be in the social environment. So Narcotics Anonymous may be critical in the, port in the beginning when all you know 
is people that you've used with or people you bought from, the NA is a safe group. But then as you get further in your stability, rather than constantly hearing about addiction in all aspects of your life and breaking away to finding, say, a group that is a hiking group or a kayaking group and starting to develop social networks that have no identification with addiction to start de-identifying with yourself as an addiction and yourself as who am I and what do I like. And I think that's uh, probably a topic for another discussion completely. But uh, we always emphasize the importance of recovery, recovery, recovery. But there's, there's a stage beyond that where you transform your lifestyle. So the whole idea of addiction, the whole idea of use is completely contrary to how you now live your life. And uh, I think that's both uh, incumbent on us as treatment professionals to encourage people to get there. But it's also a whole area of treatment that hasn't been adequately explored yet. Yet you find people who have made those transitions and have really transformed their life. And they're not only uh, inspirational, um, but they're just, uh, they're great people to hang around. They're a lot of fun. So, so uh, that's what we, we don't want to just encourage people to no longer be addicted. We want them to become fully uh, participating in their own lives and fully uh, positively influencing other people's lives. And that, that's very achievable. That is, and in fact, I think that's the goal, to have a full life with lots of fun. And uh, I think that people should be at a point where they are having fun before we think about going below four milligrams a day. Dose reduction should be no closer than every two weeks. Uh, dose reduction should be done at a very comfortable rate. And the whole goal is to keep having fun and to have a full life uh, on the other side of addiction. Uh, so thank you for being here today with us. This is uh, John Ewing with Spirit Lake Wellness.